6 this morning, first hour and second hour. Last Sunday, we answered, well, the last two Sundays, we answered the question, who's the shepherd? In, um, in 1 Samuel 16 and 17, who's the shepherd? And uh, it turns out David's the shepherd, and the, the next question is, who's the flock? And the, the answer is God's people, Israel. David, who's faithful in his father's house, in Jesse's house, to do what his father sends him to do, becomes the shepherd of God the Father's flock in Israel. And, um, and that's a magnificent story. We know the action story of the Bible and all that. But um, God showed what he wanted in selecting David in 1 Samuel 16. And then he demonstrates through circumstances by providing the Philistine and the whole situation with the, with the army in, in, in quaking and crying in their tents. He shows how he's going to put David as the king in the hearts of the people. And it isn't simple fiat. If you watch the, the history of Israel, it's not just God said, and so they did. Should be, but that's not how it is. It's that God said, and then he provided circumstances so that they respond, and David becomes the great paradigm king with all his, all his uh, thorns and knots and wrinkles. He's still the paradigm that all the kings will be judged by. And the answer to the question, who's the shepherd, is, well, David, the man after God's own heart. And the application of that and the question of radical stewardship or biblical ownership, owning what God has entrusted to us, the application of that is obvious. Are you the shepherd that you're supposed to be? And the next question you should ask yourself, if you think of yourself as a shepherd, and you should, you've been entrusted with certain delegated responsibilities. If you're the shepherd, the question that is obvious that we need to answer today is what is your flock? What has been entrusted to you? What is the delegation from God to you that you're responsible to steward, to care for, to, as the shepherd would do, to lead, to feed, to protect? And so by way of review, we've unearthed some pretty obvious inductive principles out of the story of 1 Samuel 16 and 17, who's the shepherd, and just some summary thoughts that we have come up with. The first is that today's menial duty, like tending your father's few sheep, where you're disregarded as a family member, when the, when the prophet comes to town. Today's menial duty is preparing you for tomorrow's rulership. That's absolutely true. And it's hard for you to think that way until you get into a Christian phase of anticipation of the coming kingdom. Until you start thinking about what God has said he's gonna do with you forever and ever and ever. Second hour, we're gonna look at that a lot. We're gonna tease out what it means for us in this age to seek first the kingdom and his righteousness and all these things be added to us. Today's menial duty is preparing you for tomorrow's rulership, and that's very evident in the life of David. He does, every time his father tells him something to do, he does it. He's faithful with that, and he does a good job with it. And does he have fun along the way? Is it fun to practice with your sling? Well, ask all the guys who go out to the range. Of course it's fun. Is it fun to play your guitar and make up music if you're a musician? Yes, it's it's, a, it's what you're made for. It's partly what you're supposed to do. It's a calling. So yes, it's fun, but is it fun for its own sake? No, he's serving the duties that he's been assigned. Today's menial duty is preparing you for tomorrow's rulership, so let's get at it. That's the idea of being a, a steward of what God has entrusted when it comes to whatever the duty is. And based on what God says to Samuel, 1 Samuel 16, God is seeking the integrity of your heart and he's not worried about the attractiveness of your outward appearance. If you had to pick one thing he's worried about of the two, it's the inter inner person. And we are exactly opposite, and we need to adopt God's attitude and think like he thinks about this. 
Man doesn't see as God sees God. Man looks on the outward appearance. God's looking on the heart. He's looking for the integrity of your heart. And that's, again, putting th- mashing things up. That's what he's doing in Matthew 5 when he's talking about the inner person as opposed to outward obeisance. It's the inner attitude <clears throat> that is so vital and that the law is regulating, uh, was designed to regulate for Israel. All right, the third idea is God's opinion is the only opinion that matters. Even the great Samuel can look at Eliab and say, surely before the Lord is his anointed. And God's like, eh, not that one. I'm not interested in that one. Well, then how can we know? Don't worry, God knows. And he knows. And he knows what you're doing. He knows why you're doing it. He knows who you're doing it with. And well, everybody else doesn't know, so I'm okay. That's not how it works. His opinion is the only opinion that matters. Now, when I say that, does that mean the Bible does, tells us not to concern ourselves for others' opinions? Well, the Lord Jesus continued to grow in wisdom and stature and favor with God and men in Luke 1. So are we, or I'm sorry, Luke 2. Are we supposed to disregard that idea? Are we, am I going to throw away all the Proverbs that talk about how people uh, perceive us? No, no. I'm going to say compared to God's opinion, which is infinitely important, the concerns other people have for me, other persons have for me, can be relegated to insignificance. I mean, in terms of the differential. Understand what I'm saying. You could use the wisdom of others to help you understand something about where God is on the, the matter too. Understand. But what I'm trying to get, get to the heart of is that we're exactly opposite. We're, we're worried about what people think and we pretend in our day-to-day functions since we can't see God, he doesn't talk to us, he doesn't cut us an email or send us a text and say, I didn't like how you said that. We think that he's not there or it doesn't matter because I don't have immediate feedback, but the feedback's coming. The feedback's coming, and you're going to really want to get this right. So keep that in mind. Uh, this is uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, um, but we have it as our ambition to, whether absent from the Lord, meaning here, or present with the Lord in heaven, we have it as our ambition to be pleasing to him because we must all stand before the judgment seat of Christ to receive recompense for the deeds we've done in the body, whether good or bad. That's uh, 2 Corinthians 5, 9, and 10. And the fourth idea is that a focus on our mission helps us perform our duty well. Uh, If you're not looking at the mission itself, then the day-to-day process can get very odious, and that's why all the diversions. That's why all the fun and distractions that become the the mission. In the culture that's that's about to take over, uh, in rulership, okay, in, in this culture, the, 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 in this civilization, the culture that, of this next ruling class, this next ruling generation, I should say, not class, but generation. One of the great goals has been, ever since probably the end of World War II, the goal has been to divert, to enjoy, to have fun. That's been its own goal. It's its own pursuit. And that is not ever the mission but if it becomes the mission, then, well, you get what you get. But, but that's not for you. As a believer in Christ with radical stewardship, with the claim of discipleship God has on your life, whether you know it or not, Jesus bought you with his blood. If you've trusted in Christ, then he owns you. And so you need to figure this out. Um, when you focus on the mission, the, the, the tasks start to matter in a way that they couldn't matter before. And it's personal. It has to do with pleasing God. And it's not just going through motions. And then maybe that'll be helpful for you in the, in the coming year as we dust things off, throw the old calendar out, get a new calendar. Oh, this looks like just like the last one. Uh, but we are counting, right? I think the new year is important because we are counting. And uh, you can put it in a box. This is what happens in 2024. How's your 2024 going to go? What's that box going to look like? 
Um, the mission, figuring out what your mission is will help you perform your duty. And dereliction of duty is inevitable when we lose sight of our duty. When you lose sight of it, you don't do it. And that's the neglect of God's word that defines Christianity today, Christianity in this culture. We're not, we're not mindful as a, as, a, as a culture, aggregate as believers, we're not mindful of our duty. We're not thinking about it. We don't, we don't know it. We don't, it's not a daily thing. And if it comes to mind, if God occurs it to me, well, then I'll go for it. And so we're very mystical. And, well, he hadn't called my name, so back to whatever the diversion is. Whatever you're using for a diversion from your spiritual life. But it's inevitable that you will not be on mission if you're not thinking on the mission, if you're losing sight of that duty. And your volition is a sacred trust or stewardship from God. That's the biggest idea theologically. These big, profound ideas aren't necessarily that complicated, but they're really important. There's a whole system of theology designed, and it's born from philosophy. It's designed to make you think you don't have any volition. It's nothing's your responsibility, and it's all God's responsibility. He'll make all the choices. Thank you very much. And if you succeed, well, that's because God chose for you to succeed. And if you fail, well, we don't quite say that part. They don't say that part. But if you fail, it's, it's God's fault you fail. And that's the problem with, with some systems of theology. God, in the Word, very clearly holds us responsible for our choices. It's a sacred obligation, what you choose. And so we're launching from that on the question of stewardship today. And I just want to challenge you, from the Word of God, this, in Matthew chapter 6, from God's Word, that there is a calling on your life. It's a magnificent calling. He's speaking, Jesus is speaking to the disciples of national Israel under the Mosaic law in the first century AD before he died for our sins and rose from the dead and gave us the Holy Spirit. And, and Matthew is writing to Jewish believers who have the Holy Spirit since Jesus had died and had risen from the dead and given the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost and some two decades after these events, Matthew writes these things for a Christian readership about what Jesus said to national. We're recipients of Matthew, what I want you to understand. In Matthew 6, while he's talking to national Israel, you can apply this to you if you understand the nature of what Matthew develops in terms of the kingdom. The kingdom is in advance. It's coming. It's future. It's your destiny. Just like Jesus was talking to people looking for the coming kingdom, here we are. We want to see things set right, and they're not. Politically set right, economically set right. But they're not, they're wrong, it's good, and it's getting worse. And it's not getting worse because we're eating beef and driving cars. It's getting worse because Chicken Little is winning and ruling and telling us that the sky is falling, in part. But, but that's, that's not our problem. It's really not our problem that the world is walking away from God. I'm sorry, running, I mean, sprinting away from God. That's not our problem. Our problem is to be faithful. And in Matthew chapter 6, when he tells you how to deal with concerns over subsistence, Matthew 6 he says that God is your provider. He said in verse 31, do not worry then, saying, what will we eat? What will we drink? What will we wear for clothing? For the Gentiles eagerly seek all of these things, for your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. And so instead of focusing your life on subsistence, I'm a hardworking man, I feed my family. Instead of that being your only ultimate claim, which we believe in being hardworking and feeding your family. Instead of living your life in that pursuit, even something noble like that, do something glorious eternally, but seek first his kingdom, literally in, in, the, in the original manuscript, the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. And he tells you, don't worry. 
about tomorrow, for tomorrow will care for itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. You, should, you and I need to ponder and reflect on these words. We need to think about how that integrates into our lives as believers in this age, anticipating the coming kingdom. And what our role in the kingdom is. We're going to ask, answer that question. What's my role regarding how do I seek the kingdom in the time in which I live today? It's different from what the original audience that Jesus spoke to was. They were supposed to receive Jesus as the king who's offering the kingdom with those very words. They're supposed to receive him and, and welcome him as their king. And they rejected him. And that's Matthew chapter 12 and 13. That's part of the argument of the gospel of Matthew. But today, how do we apply this? How do we seek the kingdom? That's, again, that's for second hour. Today, I want to ask, regarding radical stewardship, what are the stewardships? What are the things that God has given you that you're responsible for? And I include, besides the mission. Of course, we just mentioned the mission. But what, what has he delegated to you? What do you have that is from God that he wants you to manage on his terms. Now, if you, if you make this list, it depends on how old you are in this civilization with the various subcultures in it, usually stratified by age groups. Very strange. Um, you, you get different answers and different priorities. And nothing in the list that I'm going to show you is going to involve necessarily um, any kind of screens, visual or audio stimulation. You can do this list without that. And that thought will, will be shocking to a lot of young people. But we're going to talk about real life. So what are the stewardships? We don't have to be so, so formal. What are some stewardships? Just kind of throw them out. You can give me your list, and then I don't have the ability to brainstorm with you. I would, but I'll show you what I came up with. What are some things that are stewardships God's given us? I saw that hand. Yes, your kids. That's right. That's one of them. What else? Your, yeah, your, your home. Hey, did anybody leave the oven on or the stove? Is anybody worried when I ask you that question? Because now you're thinking, I don't know if we left the stove on. Any candles burning back home? What else? Okay. Yeah. Who says that? Spiritual gifts. Okay. A Sunday school class, yeah. You're supposed to be thinking about this right now. That's for next hour. <laughs> no, actually, that's what you're supposed to do for Sunday. So you're supposed to be like feeding what we're doing here into that. That's, that's our design. That's the curriculum, by the way. It's all coming out of the pulpit here. What else? Yeah, this is good sharing. This is some good stuff. What are, what are some other things? By the way, I've got categorical terms that will cover everything you've said so far. So we're all, we're all on the same page. Your marriage. Yeah, that's a big stewardship. It's like God told us instructions about that, and we're supposed to do it his way. What else? What do you got back there? Family and friends, yeah. Your house? Health. Oh, yes, okay. I was like, you already said house. House, health. With you, it's all H's. Yeah. <laughs> You have to steward your parents. That's right. And that stewardship changes over time. Um, there's a time when honoring your parents is to obey them. And then almost equal opposite end of the spectrum of age, it becomes that your, your responsibility to honor them is to sometimes to disobey them. Right? Take the keys, whatever. And that's hard. It's hard to steward that. 
What else? Choices. Your choices. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's, that's like my number one, because we're talking about volition, the ability to choose. What else? The people around you, your employees and coworkers. What quagmires we are discussing. I could spend my whole day on every one of those things and get the other ones just completely out of balance, just completely disregard them. Well, here's Pastor Dave's list. Thank you for sharing. And um, here's the first, no, number one, out of Ephesians, the church of Ephesus in Rev 3, when he says that you've lost your first love, what's number one? What's your first love? Is God. Is loving God, the Father, Son, and Spirit. You love the Lord your God with all your heart. Okay. Number one, I think, is a relationship with God, and that's a stewardship because you have a role in it. Am I wrong? Like the, that's the ultimate issue. I'll show you why I think so in a minute. The second one would be the capacity to make choices, and you need two things, the way I understand it, to do that. At least two things, maybe more things, but it's part of your, it's what your heart does. Your heart reasons and your heart um, chooses. And you can say, well, there's also the feelings, and um, I would say put reason first, since you can think and your feelings can't, but the feelings help, understand. I mean, I can have dinner without dessert, but I shouldn't have dessert without dinner. You see what I mean? So, so volition and reason. When I say volition, is everyone clear on what I mean by that? That's the capacity to choose your choices. The ability to make a decision is a sacred trust that God has given you. And that's what we ended with in the little summary of the David story is that it's a sacred trust that God holds us accountable for the choices that we make regarding all the rest of the stewardships. These are all interrelated, and it gets very, very complicated. Just right now, can you see how your volition connects to your relationship with God? Your ability to choose connects to that. How does that work? Well, I make my choices because of him. I make my choices because of what he wants. And I know what he wants because I've chosen prior to get into his word. So I'm, the more I'm in his word, the more my reason is capable of thinking what God wants. And then I can choose according to that reasoning. You see what I mean? Like it's all interrelated. Uh, speaking of uh, the vital delegation. Somebody said your life. Who said your life? That was a good one. Yeah, Okay. Um, I would say time, which I mean the time you have of your life. Now, why time? Because it's, it's something we think is a concept we can grab hold of and think about. I mean, you can't actually get a hold of it because as soon as we figure out that we're here now, that, that's gone. And you get, you're, you're, it's fast. It's going fast. 60 seconds a minute, right? Now, time. It's the most valuable resource you have because it is the measurement of your life, Right? And so it's a resource. It's a stewardship God's given to you. How are you using it? Right? And, and, and that's volitional. And it has to do with your relationship with God. These are all interrelated. You have God's word. And what do you do with it? Everybody does. I mean, this is out there. God has, I don't know why he chose to do it this way, but he chose to give us his ideas in poems, in genealogy charts, in mustering charts for the nation and numbers with stories interspersed in between, in narratives, in, in lyrical poetry, in songs that we don't have the music to, just the words. Ever just read lyrics to today's music? Ooh, it's probably not, it's, it's just not, doesn't work for us because it's not about the lyrics. But the whole Psalter, 150 Psalms, they're all songs. And that's not the only songs we have in the Bible. We have the Song of Solomon, several songs in there. You have, um, you have the long poetry in Proverbs chapters 1 through 9. You have 
lot of poetry. Why does God do it this way? He did it this way because he chose to do it that way, and I don't know why else. I've got a little hint in Proverbs 25.2. It's the glory of God to conceal a matter, the glory of kings to search it out. He's put these things out there, but he's given us his revelation. He's revealed things through creation, through the word who became flesh, and then through ultimately what we have today is the testimony of him in the Old and New Testaments, the word of God. 66 books, the way we count every word being the word of God, word for word. And what do you do with that sacred trust that everyone has? I was given a Bible when I was a little kid by my grandmother and my grandfather, my mom's parents. They were uh, participants in W.A. Criswell's church, First Baptist Church of Dallas, which is the largest uh, church, Bible-believing, evangelical, whatever church in the world at that time. And it's still pretty big. Um, it's, it was like the flagship church of the Southern Baptist Convention, and W.A. Criswell was a rock star. Well, he came out with a, a Criswell study Bible, probably around 1980 or 1975 or somewhere in there. And I was born in 1976, and uh, my first Bible was a King James Criswell study Bible, leather bound. And uh, definitely my grandparents inscribed it. I'm not sure if they had him inscribe it. But um, I didn't know what that was. I knew it was in large print because as I slowly learned to read, I could slowly learn to read it. And I am not proud to say that I didn't spend a lot of time in that book that I was given as a little kid. And I had to grow into an appreciation of the Bible. I listened to a lot of Bible teaching. But I really had to grow into an appreciation of the Bible. And it may be the other way for you. Maybe you had an appreciation of the Bible. You need to figure out some Bible teaching. But, um, but what do you do with this deposit, with this gift? Um, it's the revelation of God, and it's God speaking, and most people aren't listening. And so that's the question. Are we listening? The fifth item, and I don't know that these are in order because they're so interrelated. I can't untie this. This is all knotted together. Is We've talked about this. God has delegated to us suffering. And we read about this, for example, most clearly in 2 Corinthians 12. He says, I'm, I gave you this thorn so that you would be brought to weakness so I could manifest my glory and power through you. And it wouldn't be your power at all. That's 2 Corinthians 12. You and I receive suffering from God in two main forms. Sometimes he tests us, not tempts, tests our faith to strengthen us. It's resistance exercise after a good nutrition. You have a nutrition cycle, you have a resistance cycle that builds muscle and bone mass and strength. And that's what he's doing spiritually. It's how spiritual growth happens. He has to test your faith. And it's always, it's always, I said, it's always a test of faith. Do you trust me? Do you trust me? I know well that often it's a choice. Yes, I trust you. I'm choosing to trust you. Do I feel like trusting you? I feel particularly trusty? No. Does my suffering now make me think that you uh, are are, uh, loving me because I'm hurting? No, but I'm choosing based on what you've told me to trust you. That's that's testing. And sometimes we receive suffering uh, from God through divine discipline. And I think it is exquisite in its, in its power to bring pain, spiritual, physical, emotional pain in divine discipline. He is very good at this, and I would, again, direct you to the life of King David to see very clearly someone suffering under the weight of episodic divine discipline for gross error. And the discipline isn't punishment, it isn't the lake of fire, it is the rod putting the little sheep back on the trail. No, the, the grass is over here. You're over, in the, you're over in the Jersey Shore stuff. Get back over here on the path to the good green grass. That, that idea is suffering. 
is a stewardship that God entrusts to us. And maybe that's, y'all think about this for just a second. If I'm right, that God is giving me this because it's a responsibility that I'm supposed to deal with using my volition, considering my relationship with him based on what he's told me in his word for however long it takes. See, all these things are interrelated. If I'm, if I'm thinking this way about that suffering, that's a totally different way than how this hurts. Now, how this hurts for a reason. How this hurts and it's personal. How this hurts and God knows it hurts. And he knows I can handle it. He knows what he's given me what I need to, to deal with it. That's where revelation can really help you. And I think the revelation that the suffering is testing. Now, um, you could argue that the, the threat of a lion and a bear to the sheepfold is a cause for suffering. For most people, it's traumatic that you're attacked within the inch of your life, that you would possibly die to go into combat. Combat's one of the greatest traumatic stress uh, factors in all of human history, that we know. And David enters single combat with Goliath. I have no doubt that this is a test of his faith. And we don't think of this as suffering because we read, read the story. David just has ice cold, uh, uh, ice cold blood in his veins. He's just cool about this. But that's the topic. It's, it's in this realm of conflict and suffering. Your body, you mentioned health. Your body is the most valuable physical thing you can lay hold of besides someone else's because it's going to be resurrected. Every body will. Every unbeliever will be resurrected to eternal separation from God in the lake of fire. Believers will be resurrected to eternal life with God in the new heavens and new earth. So your body is an eternal thing. And it isn't that your body is a different body that like you know, this one just gets destroyed and then I start over. It's that maybe this one does get destroyed, but it gets made new. It's this body. Jesus has the nail prints in his hands in resurrection and we'll be like him in resurrection. It's the same body, in other words. It's just made new. And so um, this is a sacred trust eternally, but it's also physically the, the most valuable thing you have. If you're left-handed, okay, just switch in the illustration. But I can make everybody here a billionaire by saying I'll give you a billion bucks for your right arm. And if you're left-handed, I mean your left arm. And I, I very seriously doubt anyone here would take me up on that. And if you would, that you're crazy. But those of you that aren't crazy, notice you're a billionaire. You have your right arm, for example. See what I mean? That, like we're, we, we are so fearfully and wonderfully made. Our body's a magnificent thing. And it's dying and it's decaying and it isn't like it should be. And, and, and that's sad. But it's a valuable resource God has given us. And you have to balance it with everything else. How are you going to reason without your brain? How are you going to reason without your brain? Well, your brain, to properly brainificate, your brain needs to sleep. And how are you going to reason if you don't take care of that? You need a certain amount of fat in your diet for the fatty tissue in your brain to work properly. That's a thing. It's true. If you, if you go on a no-fat diet, your brain is going to hurt. It's going to suffer. It's just how we're made. For example, so your body is, is a stewardship. And we mentioned people, other people who have bodies as well. Other humans or other people are in relationships with us in various relationships. And when I draw that circle, I just incorporate almost all your suffering. The boss, the subordinates, the coworkers, the peers, all the problems at work. The, um, the, the sibling problems. We mentioned prayer and prayer. We're praying for the ability to witness to our families because it's so hard. Why is it so hard? Because of all those issues, all those difficult issues and the tender parts of our soul. And we don't want to, oh, it's so irritated. just don't want to deal with it. All the people, their stewardships. 
And then you obviously have to work. Where did I find in the Bible that work is a stewardship? In Genesis chapter 1, when God created man, let them tend the garden and guard it, tend it and keep it. When God made man, he made him in part in his image to keep and to tend what God had made. Cultivate and keep. Um, There is a stewardship of this, and it doesn't change in the fall uh, that we have a stewardship. The nature of the stewardship changes, becomes cursed. And so we're going to earn our bread by the sweat of our brow, fighting the thorns and thistles, but it's work. And work is a, it's, it's a divine institution. It's a sacred trust that God's given us. It's really closely related to our volition. And when you think of it as divine, as sacred, as worship, that I do the work that I do for God's sake, it totally changes your perspective. But when you don't do it that way, when you're just, oh, I got to get up and go do this thing, then you, you, you're not equipped like you would be to do it God's way. And the ninth is material property, the stuff that comes from work. Material property. Well, I got stuff that I got because that, that I didn't work for, that I was just given. Somebody worked for it. Really. What if God gave it to me? He, he worked for six days and made everything, and then he rested on the seventh day. If you got something material, it's because somebody did some work. That's not the, my main point about material property. But notice that all of these items, all of these things, pretty much capture everything except for me time. I don't know where going to the movies fits in unless you're with your friends. You can put that under people. I don't know where uh, uh, video gaming comes into here. Right? I don't know how to do those things that are just purely fun. I don't know how that works except as they affect, as it affects relationships with people or are you playing video games as unto the Lord? Is that your relationship with God? I think for a lot of gamer kids, I think that is God to them. I think that's, that's the only source of joy, happiness, contentment, pleasure that they really think of and they think of what they really love. Okay? And so, and so I think that um, that's a difficult topic. Where does fun fit in on this list? But it shouldn't be number 10. Fun is not a stewardship God has given us. But notice in David's work, he's got target practice. He's got writing psalms as he tends the sheep. So there is fun, but it's, it's in, in the work. The little ditty I made up with little kids, with our little kids a long time ago was, um, I said, work is fun. Because, because that's abnormal, right? To think that work is fun. Because work is the opposite of fun. We're, you know, the great county mountain, we're going to kill the, the jerk that invented work in the great, uh, candy, in, in the great rock candy mountain. The, the fun and work are opposites. No, no, work is where the fun is. Until you figure that out, you don't know what fun is. But work is fun, and life is work. And so we're doing some simple mathematic substitutions. Work is fun, and life is work, so life is fun. Life is fun if it's work, if you, if you get... The priorities. Okay, These are, this is a list of stewardships that I think account for all our responsibilities. And now again, I'm, a, I'm trying to apply Matthew 6.33, seek first the kingdom and his righteousness, and the illustration we have from David. You could look through all of these relationships, all of these responsibilities or stewardships in David's life. You could evaluate your own life according to these. I want to talk about where the balance is. 
Where is the balance in all of these? Because one of these is going to far outstrip the others, and there's a cause-effect relationship between a couple of them. Um, but let's get to volition, and I put reason together with those two. Volition, the ability to make choices, and therefore the point at which stewardship is taking place because you're choosing what you're choosing that you're given authority over, your volition. So we said time is one of these, and revelation, and suffering, and people, and your body, and your work, and property. These are all sort of, if there's something else that isn't part of, you know, then it's, it's a small thing. It's trace elements, I think. So we're kind of drawing a circle around life. And again, if, if I've missed anything with my broad categories, please let me know. But this kind of captures everything. But what didn't I put on this, on this screen that's, that's in the other list? What's missing? Yeah, number one. Number one, which really resolves everything. If I'm worried about how much time should I spend with work, or how do I balance work with taking care of my family, or how do I do X, Y, and Z? What about my body? How does my, how does my fitness relate or my health concerns? How do I get all this in balance? Really, um, I first get with what God has said, and that's really a, a, a vital choice. It's a daily choice. It's not a legalistic choice, but it's a daily choice because of the number one thing. I get with God's revelation so that I'll know because I have read enough of his word to know that I don't know. I know enough, I have enough wisdom from the Proverbs, for example, to know we don't know. And life has taught me that too. And I messed up enough math problems in algebra class uh, the first two or three times I tried them to know that I I mess up. I, I don't know. God knows. And so I get with his revelation and that's a cause effect thing that will bring forth a real walk with him as I trust him in his word and I I tell, talk to him about it, that relationship with God of communication, that will characterize and balance all the other things because my concerns, my anxiety about how much time I have left, I don't need to have anxiety about that. God, my relationship with him covers that. He's got my days numbered. And you bring God into the picture and everything takes its proper balance. And that, what I'm trying to demonstrate is kind of an apologetics thing that this is how we're made. We're made to find the refuge in God that his, his control of my days is, is, is what I need. Otherwise, I'm going to have regret. I'm going to be stuck with Proust. I'm going to be regretting lost time. Uh, I'm going to be looking for all that missed time and opportunity, and I'm going to live. At some point, I'm going to start regretting wasted opportunities instead of rejoicing in a Savior who makes my days count. Relationship with God is really the answer, and the only way to have it is communication. Now, the reason I expanded Revelation to make it bigger than the other categories so that then I could put on the relationship with God as the, as the characterizer of all the other things, the reason I made this the way I did is because relationships require communication, and there is no relationship without communication, and what God has given us in his revelation, his word, he revealed himself as what revelation means. He uncovered what couldn't be known about him through nature. We know he's powerful, we know he's organized, we know he's, he's very creative, but we don't know much more about him except that he tells us. And when he gives us his revelation, this is him telling you about himself. It's God disclosing himself to you so that you know what he's like. And every word of scripture does this. The genealogy charts do this. The mustering charts, the, the, the military mustering lists of how many people from each tribe and who was the commander of each little subgroup. That is part of his self-disclosure. 
And all the historical material is showing you he's measuring his faithfulness according to his promises. He's going to show you that he does what he says. And so you don't really have a relationship with God without him revealing him, disclosing himself to you. That's the way the world is. The whole world is doing the Isaiah 6 thing. They're not listening. He's speaking very clearly, but they're not listening. And so there's no relationship because there's no revelation. So what are the pretenders to this? Well, I, I got a word from God. Is it, can you point me to where that word from God is in here? Oh, oh no, it's just something that God put on my heart. And that will be presented as a replacement for revelation. Now, I'm teaching categorically how to consider God's revelation in all the aspects of our lives. It's very applicational today. Understand? But, but this isn't like a, what I'm doing is not a revelation from God. It's just a thought process theologically about the aspects of your life that are supposed to come under the lordship of our Savior, your relationship with God. Revelation is God self-disclosing to us, and that is communication. It is the very obvious first move, I want a relationship with you, here's the word. My grandparents gave me that, that treasure that I now really value with all the scars that it got sitting in the, in the car in Texas <laughs> between Sundays or whatever. Um, I really value that treasure like, like few things that I can touch in this life because I've understood now what it represents, what it means, what it is. It is God's first move in saying, I'm here, and I want you to know me. And you can, you can take me up and learn me, learn of me, and, and, and come to know who I am. And it's going to be on his terms. We're going to read things and not understand. We're going to read it again and not understand. We're going to pray about it and say, Lord, I don't understand. Please help me understand. We're going to bother, it's going to bother us. And that, that grit is going to start making a pearl. And then when I start to have understanding, when he finally lets me, through the dark trouble of confusion, come to clarity, and I see what he's saying in that passage, it's, a, it's such a great blessing. But that, that's on God's terms. It's his time. Lord, I'm going to get a blessing from you. Give me, give me something good. It doesn't work that way. You open your heart as you open the word and say, God, let me know who you are. Let me understand what you're saying. And that's why we spend so much time in the word of God here. Because a revelation, the revelation of God is him speaking to us so we can have a relationship. In other words, it's never that I'm trying to learn about the Bible. It's never that I'm trying to learn about God. It's always that I want to know him. And that means I have to learn about what he's saying. I have to figure out the historical stuff. I have to figure out the, the background material. I even have to do a little grammar to know him as he's revealing himself. But that's revelation, which feeds relationship. Now, if, if I'm right that the, the dynamics are, or, or that the mechanics of relationship are primarily communicative, that it's mainly communication for you to have a relationship, then uh, uh, God is speaking to us in, in his word. So how do we speak to him? What would that be, the other side to that be? Well, it's very unusual. When I speak to you and give you a call, we get together, speak across the table or speak across the, the, the airwaves uh, with, the, with these radios we're carrying around calling phones. If I talk to you and you talk to me, then that's like a normal human communication, person to person. If I write you a letter, you read it. There's been communication. You write back so that it closes the loop so we have a functioning relational communication. That's why when you ghost somebody, it's, it's a problem. You don't respond and they're like, what's wrong with you? Um, 
well, we're going to the emergency room, so I just didn't respond on the text or whatever. But, but, but there's a communication breakdown. Well, we're not used to having God tell us the last thing he said in his word was in 96 AD in the pen of the Apostle John. We're not used to 2,000 years of him just saying this is the deposit and us take it a bit at a time and, talk, and then talk to him about it moment by moment. That's a totally different method of communication, but it is apparently the protocol. It's the way that God did it. So since that's how he's done it, we have to decide, am I going to be arrogant or rejected or humble myself and say, God, have your way and thank him for the blessings along the way. So it's communication. And then that puts everything into balance. Is it that your body's unimportant? It's that it's not the most important thing. It takes its proper place. So let's talk about losing the balance. If we lose the focus on revelation, which is the first thing to go, and that's easily done. You just, just leave your Bible in the car. Just, just don't read it. Just don't spend any time talking to him about what he said. Don't meditate on the word. It's, it's very easy for this to happen. And now we're describing most people in churches in America today during most days or most hours of most days. Many of you, many of, of our family members are this way, that this is their day. They have their volition, their property, their work, their body, their people, their time, their suffering, and they're not aware of God's revelation. A wise man once said, that if you want to be consistent in your walk with God, the rate of learning or paying attention to God's word has to exceed the rate of forgetting. Doesn't that make sense? Yeah, because if I've got a, a faster drain rate than fill rate, then eventually I'm empty. It's just how it is. Tom Constable, and he probably got this from someone else, he said, we're all crackpots. We are. And so the only way to stay full is to stay under the tap, right? If you've got a little leakage, we do, we forget. We lose sight of God through his word. Well, this is, this is where you are. And so now people can easily become outsized in their focus. And then that will lead to suffering. That will lead to all kinds of problems that are interrelated. If I'm suffering because of people problems, maybe my performance at work isn't as good as it would have been. And I could start having cortisol effects with the deleterious effects on my body. And by the way, the more people problems and suffering I have, the less time I have to take care of that necessary, consistent maintenance of my body. You can see how all of these things amount to what turns out to be a waste of time. And, uh, and all, everything's out of whack. Just when people become more important to you than they should. And how, will that, how could I have prevented that when it happens? I could have been about God's revelation in a consistent way so that when the people problem comes, it's still a problem, still hurts, but my relationship with God has something to say about it because I bring him into this, the picture. Well, I can lose balance with anything. I could, uh, I could lose balance of, uh, of with, let go of God's revelation and become about body. You know, anybody that's oh, hyper-focused on body where it's driving everything, uh, it's, yeah, it's called a teenager, right? This is an easy pitfall people fall into and it when i say body i'm not just talking about body image but that's part of it i'm also talking about the troubles with the body and the whole puberty thing like this could easily become a major stumbling block and one of the satan's greatest avenues of attack is on sexuality for example but a fixation on my body fixation on the physical physical stimulation in this in this problem being unbalanced is where drug addiction happens Think about it. No, no, drug addiction is more of a spiritual problem. But the dependency is physical. 
It's a real thing. That's why they, they call it a disease. Alcoholism is a disease because they end up with a physical dependency. And they, well, I genetically have a, a predisposition toward going for that physical dependency. Well, however that all cause effect works, it's in the body. And it goes way out of whack because you're not thinking of God before you put something in your body, right? And, and they're all kind of, I'm just saying, these are easily connected and interrelated. Let's talk about how an over hyperstimulation, a focus on stimulation of the body affects your work. And then you start having repos and lose property and other things because you are self-inflicting your own trouble. I didn't mention there's a category of suffering that isn't divine discipline and it isn't um, testing, right? That's not a, the one that's not really a stewardship from God, but it's a thing you saddle yourself with, Jacob Marley, is you forged your own chains, to borrow what Dickens says. You forged your own chains, but not in the afterlife right now by bad decisions that have negative consequences and you have to suffer them. The law of volitional responsibility or cause and effect. What about um, if I put work in its wrong place? People stop being as important. My body goes to pot because I'm so focused on work and I haven't related it back to the creator. This has become the mission. The work has become the mission, and it's not your mission. And that's Matthew chapter 6, verse 33. What about Marx? Which one of these did Karl Marx think was the most important? Yeah, he said it's all about stuff. We just have to redistribute the stuff, and that will solve the problem because of the fixation on property. Has that caused any problems? Has that mentality caused any trouble in the world? Like millions of deaths? Murders by states of their citizens, killing their own people, bloods running in the street, blood running the streets of these, of these communist uh, dictatorships because it doesn't work. Because it turns out that the property is a stewardship from God. He distributed that or not. Well, I'm tired of not having the distribution. Well, I, I have a word for you if you don't think you have the amount of property that you need. That God has chosen the poor to be rich in faith and inherit the kingdom that's coming. He also says, Jesus also says, that's James, but Jesus says that it's, uh, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom. How is that possible? Because it's not about the money or the lack of money. It's about the person. It's about the person. And if you can get past your wealth or past your poverty to God and trust in him and get with the gospel, then you have uh, overcome an almost impossible obstacle for a rich man. And the poor, as Marx pointed out, they have the opiate of the masses. They have religion. The poor can hope in the future. And so they're marked out by God because they look past their poverty to the wealth of God's eternal inheritance. So property gets an outsized thing. This is what Charlie Brown's upset about in the Christmas special. Materialism, merchandising, the market-based Christmas, right? That, that, that thing. Well, things haven't gotten better since 1968 or whatever. We haven't, we haven't improved on our materialism. We've gotten worse. And materialism doesn't mean you like stuff. Materialism means that you believe all there is is the physical. We all sl slide into this uh, thought process, and it becomes unbalanced. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all of these things will be added to you. That's what Jesus tells his Jewish disciples under the administration of Israel in Matthew 6.33 summarizing how to deal with the question of reward in heaven or reward here on earth. 
You want eternal wealth. You want eternal reward. And that is a personal relationship with God. Beloved, you have a relationship with God, which means you have a spiritual life now. You have God's own life imparted to you by the Holy Spirit of God. You have the Spirit of God having regenerated you and made you new in Christ so that you have God's life. You have it now. You have the fellowship that has always existed between the Father, Son, and Spirit that is now yours. It's yours for the, for the enjoyment or the rejecting. Fellowship with God, the incredible, unspeakable birthright, the forgotten blessing as one writer called it. You have all of the, somebody said this, your spiritual gift. You have the word of God. You have a mission that God has given you, a lifelong responsibility that will feed you and equip you and focus you every single day because you have such a high calling. The challenge, though, comes to our priorities. What are we doing here? What are we here for? What is it all about? It is about God having his way in our lives, and he's told us what that way is. Now, the goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart, a clear conscience, and sincere faith. And the most loving thing you can do for a non-believer is tell them who Jesus is and what he did for them, because that's how they get eternal life. The most loving thing you can do for a believer is to show them the way to spiritual growth, to show them the way to spiritual success and service to God in a life of discipleship. In other words, the most loving thing is Matthew 28, 19, and 20. Go therefore and make, all the disciples, make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them into the name of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, teaching them to keep all that I've commanded you, and lo, I'm with you all the way to the end of the age. Our Father, thank you for the eternal life that's ours and the privilege we have of thinking as uh, disciples of your Son, sitting at his feet, learning of him through his apostles, through the prophets of the Old Testament, through the prophets of the New Testament. Father, we're learning what he has for us, what he expects of us, and how to organize our lives and our thoughts and how to, how to prioritize. Thank you for the sacred trust of all these facets of life that easily get out of balance and cause us suffering and discomfort when we don't have our relationship with you in place. I pray for sensitivity spiritually for all of us, Father, as we uh, consider these things, as we consider what's most important and focal for each day, that we'd be in your word and be about your word in our lives and talking to you, that the first thing would be the first thing and everything come into focus and into balance. I pray in Jesus' name, amen.